This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 102 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Michelle Dennedy. She's Vice President and Chief Privacy Officer for Cisco, an outspoken advocate for building technologies that not only enhance our lives, but also promote integrity and respect for people regardless of their level of technical sophistication. Michelle is leading the charge for better understanding and implementation of privacy and data security policies around the world. Our conversation includes her thoughts on why organizations find privacy so challenging, the differences between aspirational messaging and foundational values, and where she thinks the next generation of security and privacy professionals may take us. Stay with us. The long and winding road. I I actually do get uh, mentees saying, how do you become a privacy officer? And I think... Uh, first you go and you get an undergraduate, a, a, a science degree in psychology, um, hoping to become a psychiatrist. Then you take a gross anatomy class. You realize you don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, so you end up going to New York city and actually on the advice of a, uh, PhD program I was interviewing for, he said, kid, you are not a researcher. You are an advocate. Go do something in advocacy for a year. And if you still want in my program, you're in. So I moved to New York City, became a paralegal at a very large law firm, and a couple years later, I ended up going to law school and starting my career as a patent litigator, actually, in New York City, doing medical Hmm. devices, of all things. Hmm. And then I moved out to Silicon Valley, followed a man, (laughs) as you do, Um, got a minivan, as you do, and uh, I was recruited. You were all in. I was all in. I was like, okay, burbs, here we go. Right. And so it was one of these things. It was like a series of weird accidents. And I stumbled into Sun Microsystems and uh, at the time called my my then husband, my now ex-husband. And I said, hey, have you heard of Java? Is that important? And he said, Java? Yeah, that's really important. I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to this place called Sun. Have you heard of it? He was like, good Lord, don't go shame the identity name. And so, of course, I, I start off on this on this footing. I go in there, and I thought that I was interviewing for a patent law job because the recruiter said that it was a patent law job. Well, lo and behold, she told them I was interviewing for the trademark position. So it was a great day, and I walked home, and I got a call two days later, and they said, you know what? We have two candidates for this job. One is really well qualified, and the other one is you, and we think you're perfect. <laughs> So I said, okay. Um, And it was just kind of, I guess, um, now looking back, it it really, I was a good fit for Sun, which is also why I'm a good fit for Cisco. Very entrepreneurial, um, exploratory. Um, We were changing the world. We're high ethical foundation. But the big kicker was Scott McNeely, our CEO, who had said privacy was dead. You have zero privacy topped it off with a hearty get over it. And so no one in, yeah, I mean, no one in power, as you can imagine, your CEO says, this is garbage. Um, Only a crazy person would say, I'll do that. And that's what I did. (laughs) So I I leaned in um, partially because 
it was interesting to me as a former patent litigator, I break things down into sort of spheres of ownership and influence in prior art. And so at the time, I looked at the portfolio that we had in, in technology, in you know the data center and in networking, and I broke that out into what does that mean in terms of these relatively newish privacy laws then coming out of the European theater. They were they were cast in 1995, but they really didn't start getting implemented into the into the aughts. Um, and then I said, "Gosh, you know, this is this is not just legal compliance. This is a business. When you're selling virtual containers and you're selling encryption and you're putting together an identity portfolio, what you're doing is you're you're putting in aspects of control across the network that help people tell their stories individually and help us." keep the integrity of stories about our employees, about our customers, about our governments. And I got really, really excited. And so that was really the the earliest stages of my diving in deep to uh, data protection and privacy. So it sounds like what you're describing to me is something um, foundational. So help me understand the difference between um, building privacy in at that foundational level versus it being something that's grafted on or it's something that is um, something that you're ordered to do by the marketing department, for example. Absolutely. And, and you're touching on, you know, really where it all comes together for me is I, my, my job uh, my first privacy gig was write a privacy policy for marketing. Um, there was this brand new editor in chief, Jonathan Fox, who 20 years later is still my my work buddy and partner over here at Cisco. Um, and he was the editor in chief. And our CMO said, write a privacy policy. We're going to post it. Um, at that point, that was a risky thing to do, to post a privacy policy and tell people what you were doing with data was a risk. So I looked at it again from an intellectual property and a risk perspective. And I said, first of all, whenever you post a notice publicly, and, and remember websites, it was still unsettled law, whether that was a contract or not. Hmm. Whenever you say something publicly that the public, even if you're B2C or B2B or B2G for government, when you state something affirmatively and it can affect someone's material choice in doing business with you, you you're sort of privately legislating. So if you just post something and you don't have the backing for it, or you haven't figured out where your claims are, you don't know what your prior art is, you don't really know that what you're saying is A, true, or B, material, or could be impacting someone's decision making. So we started out thinking bolt on, you know, write me a privacy policy, give me coverage, give me air cover. And what we discovered is by really understanding data flows and what data means to the business and how it is managed throughout the business, you actually can make a statement that's very powerful. So I now say rather than having a bolt-on policy that sort of is a disclaimer against harm, when you look at a privacy policy, and particularly if you find yourself in the lovely and enviable position of writing one, Instead of looking at it as what is the lowest layer of legal risk that I can stomach, I look at it as a business plan. What is my business plan for data? How risky do I want to be? How transparent do I want to be? Where am I doing business? 
And once you figure out those factors, you start to go down the path that, that you're talking about. Bolting it on at the end means you have to do a lot of discovery work and maybe even a lot of retrospective repair, or you got to lie. Lying is off the table for me. So if right. it was something that was in line with the law and with ethics and with morality, but it wasn't built into the product, if I started at the end of a project, we would have to redo and you have to stand in front of the firing squad of, oh my God, we have a release date and we have all these people and millions of dollars and you know dogs and cats living together. No fun for anybody. It's a lot more fun to start in at the scoping basics. Now everybody says, oh, call me early, but they don't say what, what kind of conversation I have. Hmm. So that's why I really focus on, um, and we actually offer a scoping workshop. So we do a privacy engineering scoping workshop and all of these elements of privacy engineering I've honed across the years from really trial and error and working with industry people of places that it works. I work with data quality people. My father grew up as an architect and a security uh, person in hardware and software. And so I would call home on the weekends and say, hey, dad, you know, I've got a lot of different kinds of people and portals are really hot right now. And so we talked about segmentation and data modeling. And then I'd call home another weekend and go, hey, you know what, there's this law and it says that if things are encrypted, then they're exempt. And we talked about key management. So hmm. as you figure out what is the business problem you're trying to solve instead of what's the technology gidget you'd like to have, then you start to really put together a plan that says, okay, here's my data plan. I want to onboard people using a mobile device. Ah, where? Okay, I got the geography. Um, what kind of people are these? Are these, uh, you know, am I the YMCA and I'm trying to get people who are underage and maybe even, you know, 12 to do, be in the babysitters? Oh, okay. So I've got children's data now. Mm. You start to collect all of those aspects. So it is the collection of these aspects, the monitoring of the data and the constant overlooking as you do an agile type of development, you know, whether it's truly agile or whether you're sort of doing a modified uh, water flow sort of a you know project-based project, at every single step of the way, you should be thinking about what is the data loads? What's the I and the O? We forget about what is the actual data going in when we talk about I.O. And it's really, really critical. Is it fair to say that it's almost, it's, I mean, it sounds to me like it's almost like a values statement. Very much so. So I have a four-part test. So when people come with their business case, you know, we want, uh, this is an old case, not from Cisco. Um, we want to embed a chip under prisoner's skin and it will have all their crimes alleged and proven on this chip so mm. that we know who the bad guys are. Um, so that's the business proposition and, and the the what's in it for you IT is, of course, lots and lots of gear, lots of processing, et cetera. And lots of consulting, getting this crazy thing. Now, four-part test. Usually, the four-part test for other people starts with the law. Is it legal? And in that jurisdiction, that's legal. Mm. And the second part test is, can we make money? And, the, and in that jurisdiction, the answer was yes. But that fails my four-part test. My four-part test starts with, A, is it moral? And that one didn't even pass stage one for me. Mm. I don't find it as a human, something that I could stomach to put 
known and alleged crimes, even if they're legal in that place, knowing what I know about the power of the network and how information can be and will be abused over time. And and the appetite of those caregivers, and they are supposed to be state caregivers, um, to think about what happens upon release and, and what happens as they go out throughout their lives, et cetera. So for me, that was a moral test, um, but I went down the rest of the, the test here. So ethics, to your point, what is your brand? So when you think about brand and you watch uh, marketing people go through a brand exercise and a rebranding exercise, they go through a series of these kind of ooshy-squooshy things like trust, quality, mm-hmm. um, speed, efficiency, yeah. scalability. Your privacy is important to us. Your privacy is important to us. These are your corporate ethics. And I, mm-hmm. I always apologize to ethicists, ethicists everywhere. This isn't the Aristotle, the Aristotle version. But your ethics are, are your corporate brand. And I think as I get deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of ethics engineering, I'm getting more refined in that thinking. But for today, think about all of those, those superlative names and the avoidance of the negative names about your brand. So has your business plan crossed that path? You know, we're an honest broker. We, we don't do business with um, people that are do terrible things. So that particular use case did not pass that one either. And mm-hmm. then you get to legal. So you've passed moral, you've passed ethical. Now is it legal? And sometimes that answer is in this jurisdiction and not in that jurisdiction. And then you get to the final big kahuna, which is, is it still commercially relevant? Have you spent so much time avoiding risk that you lose your margin? Or are you doing something that's so geographically hampered in scope that it now doesn't really make sense to execute on that plan. And that doesn't mean you throw Mm. out the plan wholesale. It means you've gone through that thought experiment fairly, you know, fairly quickly. And you're thinking about how could we make this different? What if we just had chips in people's uniforms and they were assigned uniforms instead of putting it inside someone's body? Okay, well, now we probably pass the moral test. You know, running that data center is that something that we could do with our ethical brand well it depends and then you go down that rabbit hole and you go down and you go down and so that's what i do is i I think getting to that table and telling the people at that table how to relate to data is how you make that that all important distinction between data protection privacy and security because security is your best friend the whole way. Security is the manner in which you manage the why. So the what and the why is what's the data, and that's why it's a fallacy to think that privacy officers only deal with personal data or PII. You don't know what the bucket is until you know what's in the bucket. So, and and I've never had a job where confidentiality and taxonomies Hmm. don't fall into that same methodology. So if you're an efficient organization, you put those things into similar, if not the same work streams to figure out what is your policy. So you look at those various elements of what I will call intellectual property broadly, and you figure out what are the rules that govern these types of data, and then who is allowed to access them. Whenever there's a who, there's privacy, because that's a person. So the what might entail who, it's medical information, so that's who data, and the people managing that medical data has a who, so there's a privacy layer on there. But you also have intellectual property, um, you know, you, the medications that are that are issued to that patient, etc. Um, so, as you're going through this cycle, you understand also sort of the risks and the opportunities 
um, that you can engage in with your security partners and with your quality teams and with your supply chain of data. Who are the third parties that you need to have to actually execute on this plan? Okay, good. You've got to figure out how do you cross that barrier of my organization, third-party organization, what do I need to know to make that work? So that's why this is a constant hands-on. It's not like, oh, this is PII and I'm done, or it's not PII and I'm done. It's a conversation that is as rich as your business plan. How do you cross that line from your privacy policy being uh, purely aspirational to having it be part of what the company does every day, having it be foundational. Yeah, so it's it's um it's an art, I will say. There's not a there's not a distinct formula and it also depends on who you are and how strong your brand is. So you see a lot of very hmm. young companies and startups with huge statements and they probably can live up to them because they probably have one, maybe two functions. So if you only have one or two functions, I think it's a fallacy to think only big companies can do privacy engineering. In fact, the best companies are startups. You know, know what your data nutrition label is, done. Know where it's going, done. Document it, done. You're doing it hmm. anyway to get funded. So why not do it right and also have it so that when you're acquired, we know what your data nutrition is. Um, But to your point about the policies are, how do you get from aspirational to to down and dirty? It is really, really tough as a multinational company to get down to just one that is not purely aspirational sounding because you're, you're serving so many different masters. And there are now legal requirements of what goes into the privacy policy. I think it's always sort of a, a hilarious conversation. I was having this conversation with the CPO of Uber, Ruby Zaffa, who's fabulous. Um, and we were talking about all these regulators are like, it's got to be readable. No one can read the policies. And then they go ahead and they write their law and they require magic language. So we're like, well, <laughs> thanks for that magic language. You've just made my policy two pages longer. Uh, it's not very readable. So you're, you're dancing on sort of an art form of what communicates well. And this is why I did a, a graphic novel at my last company because we were a B2C shop and um, I knew no one was reading my privacy policy. I did know that it was important to the consumer what I was communicating And I had a lot of complicated things to say about security. So we actually did a graphic novel, and then we compared Hmm. it line by line with a 16-page single-spaced privacy policy. And we attached that as well for the for the purists, for the one percenters that want to read that. But if you looked at it line by line, there was either a graphic, a lesson, a call out or uh, an image that demonstrated those principles. So if you were looking at it, that's that's something that I that I did last company that's a little trickier. I'm not saying it can't be done for Cisco, but we will probably do something different because our our layer down in the network and in the services that we provide are a little bit different. So you hmm. what you do is you figure out what's that art form and who are you communicating to? I'm largely communicating to governments and other businesses um, at this stage. We do have a collaboration business that's a little closer to B2C. Figure out the who. Then you figure out, to your point, how does this actually get executed? So your privacy policy is the top-line thing. That's not necessarily even the notice. The notice is the thing you publish publicly. And, and these are that's your private legislation. It better be true. You better be walking that walk, and here's what's in the notice. It can be quite aspirational. The next layer down is your policy, and a big P policy. And some people split them into parts, and, and we do here. 
there's a unified set of activities and promises that we make and we train every single person that's handling data. And then you have a series of either rule books, playbooks, standards. There's a number of different names that are used for them. But those are the things that the person in the call center has a manual. Here's how you handle this type of data. And here's what you do if that happens. All those FAQs, what do you actually do down and dirty? That goes down there. So if you stacked up that whole stack of, of paper, if you will, virtual paper, you probably would have a couple hundred page document. But if you provide it in, you know, our, our, our required standards of business conduct gives every single employee and they're required to go through the training. They have a top line level on ethics and our business plan and our policy. And the whole policy is linked there. Mm. If you are onboarding in our tech uh, department dealing with customer problems, we have very specific training and rule books for you that will match up to those principles in the higher level policy, but it will be much more in depth for your part of the business. I would say it's the art of leadership, actually. Hmm. It, it's not just bolting anything on or, or covering. If you're, if you're doing this for compliance, I mean, God bless you. I, I can't imagine doing this for anything other than passion because it's just too hard. You know, I'm constantly every day being told that I'm either critical and not done or inconsequential. <laughs> and, and it's well, never anything yeah. in between. <laughs> but, 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 but so so that leads me to my next question, which is this, which is uh, what are the natural tensions that exist within a company, the scale of Cisco? Um, where do you find people bumping up against you? Where, where are where do those tensions lie? Yeah. And I think I think it's certainly not. Um, specific to to my company currently, I think yeah. there's a. I think there's a lack of data culture. We don't have a model for data as an asset, and even when you say data as an asset, instantly your mind rushes to advertising and selling out, and people aren't in control, and dogs and cats living together again. Um, what I mean by data asset is something is either of value and it's causing you to make better decisions or run your business better or do something better or make you know better, more ethical decisions, or it falls on the other side of the, the balance sheet. Even well-collected, well-curated data, if neglected, turns into a liability. So we hmm. don't necessarily think about the two halves of the whole. So that's thing number one, is we don't really have a common curricula and language. I think the word privacy, which we primarily use in the United States, the, the, you know, the academics will tell you, and, and I agree with them, that there is a fine line distinction between privacy and data protection in academia. In the enterprise application, it is data protection. But in the U.S., we use the word privacy, and so everyone has an opinion about what it means. And that's not private because it's my work email but it has your name on it. <laughs> and that's hmm. not private because I gave a talk at some place. Well, the fact of the talk is not, and, and maybe you've even published your slides, but it could be that there's other aspects like what hotel you stayed at that are private. Hmm. So it's one of these things where you need a language for data and that gets you some pushback. And then the other thing is just kind of old-fashioned shock and awe. There's a lot to do in the modern company to stay on budget, to feed the quarterly beast of the SEC and the investors that, that can sink you 
um, with with the stroke of a pen based on an opinion. So you have hmm. to have a certain um, coordination of values. You have to have this quarterly report out. And if you're doing something that's going to give you short-term benefit, like data, but really short-term harm if it's breached, but really the long-term view is where you get to data strategy. And so where you're building most efficiently, you have a strategy. If you're building for compliance, you have tactics and you're busy. And so that runs into conflict as well to figure out, you know, what, where's your sweet spot? Do you want to take the investment view? That doesn't mean everything goes slow, but by no means talk to my team. They're like always gasping on the pavement. <laughs> I've been driving them so hard, but we do take a longer term view and we think, you know, I look at the top line strategy. I tell every privacy officer, at least if you're not reading the whole 10K report in the U.S., read the, the letter to shareholders. That's where you're going. At least that's where your CEO thinks we're going in the next year. And, and it, it's not the day-to-day -to -day touch that you need to have for your business, but you have to be a business person as well as a privacy advocate, as well as being able to at least speak the, the language of technology <laughs> to understand you know, how they tick and how they work, and then understanding the special personality that is the IT crew. There's a special type of person that was attracted to security. There's a special type of person that was attracted to marketing. And there's a special type of person attracted to sales. And I work with every single one of them. So I tell you what, I, I probably use more of my psychology degree than I do my law degree on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, I think we find ourselves these days uh, where folks have a real cynicism when it comes to privacy. I think when we look at all the, the stories in the news about companies like Facebook and uh, this massive aggregation of our data, and I, I think this feeling of, of violation that uh, you know folks are gathering and, and making connections about us that maybe we're not so comfortable about, um, do, you, do you think there's hope on the other side of that? Do you think this is a, a stage we're going to get through? Will we push through and, uh, as a society, come up with some rules to, uh, to make everybody feel a little better about all this stuff? Yeah, so, you know, for me, it's a day-to-day -day thing of recharging my batteries because it's very easy to go home and, and suffer from the same cynicism of, like, you know do people really care if they're willing to do these things? And and mm. is the money so great in selling other humans' data and stories that no fine will ever be high enough, no shame deep enough that they will do the right things? And, and I do go home some days thinking that. More days than not, I go home and I think, you know what's really cool is um, my business partner, Jonathan, was in the in the store replacing his phone the other day and he said I was standing in line at Verizon and this guy was like I don't want that app on my phone and I don't want this one because it collects too much data and he was like hmm. 20 years ago when we started this you never would hear someone not taking an app because of the data you hear people talking about um, getting off of a social network because they now knew that they were sharing their data for free. They, they had at least an idea that there was advertising going on, but the fact that someone would try to manipulate my choices in an in a election is, it hits that moral and ethical 
thing for them. So I think that there's that sort of outrage sort of percolating. That's thing number one. Thing number two is this is a very well-paid job. Try, if you will, to get an eight-year-out privacy officer. You will not find them because during the recession, everybody got rid of the privacy people, stuffed them under security, or told the security officers, you are now security and. So we have sort of this big dumbbell. We have old farts like me, and then you have very young people coming up who are awesome. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I didn't have a a privacy class in my law school. It did not exist. There was one Hmm. textbook um, uh, by uh, Bender, and it was on um, licensing, online licensing. And there was one book on online licensing when I went to law school. That's how it's like ye old, you know, wagon wheel law I am. But, you know, kids are coming out now with master's degrees. There are LLMs in, in privacy. Um, <laughs> but the middle, I know, it's crazy, right? So now it's um, the youth is making me very excited about that energy. The money in the market to try to hire the scant staff of, of experienced privacy officers is cool. And every now and again, I'm like, okay, remind yourself. <laughs> I've never mm-hmm. really done it for the money, but I do have a mortgage. So every now and again, I'm like, stop being outraged morally. This is, this is your life. Um, and it's a good one. Be grateful. And then the final thing is, I think um, GDPR, kind of all other things aside, has certainly at least hinted at a market. So it's a market in downside risk because of the large fining schema. But I think it's also a market in prominence because one of the key aspects is that you have to actually go enlist your critical data. And by doing that, that is the start of how you start counting assets. Once you figure out how many apples in your store and how many are going off, you start to understand how many you want to order from the orchard. And once you figure out that you can get the not so great ones and sell them at a lower cost to a baker who turn them into a pie, you have an empire. So I think now that we're starting to be required to map our data, we're being required to do privacy impact assessments and assessing the impact to the individual, the impact to the organization, and the impact that controls, and here come my security friends again, all those lovely, beautiful controls. Now you start to understand that that market starts to really sing. I, and I'll give you a, a concrete number from last year. In getting ready for GDPR, $5 billion with a B were spent in getting ready for GDPR just from consultants and lawyers. I'd like to see at least some of that money go into automation and building tools. And you know what we're building here is I hope to be a platform that will be the underpinnings of a network that I'm happy that my kids are traveling on. My, my kids are digital natives. They get on and off platforms when they don't trust them. They will find their first job, probably find their first uh, boyfriend or girlfriend online. Um, they will definitely apply to colleges. I've got a, a child heading off to college and everything was online. All of these things for my kids, I want to be safe. I want to be secure. I want their stories to have integrity. And so I build. And I get up tomorrow and I build again. Our thanks to Michelle Dennity from Cisco for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. 
You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Zane Picorni, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.